please have a seat. Beloved brothers and sisters, let's hear from the Lord. If you would turn with me to the book of Hosea, Ezekiel, Daniel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, it's right near the end of the New Testament before the rest of what we call the minor prophets. If you're using a Bible provided there for you, it's page 632. Now there are many good things that we could say about God's chosen nation during the time of the divided kingdom. That is, the time after Solomon's death in 930 B.C., kingly oppression and flagrant idolatry began almost immediately. The northern kingdom, Israel, otherwise known as Ephraim, would be dispersed by the Assyrian forces in 722 B.C., The southern kingdom of Judah would be taken captive by the Babylonians around 586 B.C. And the nation that the Lord had called out of Egypt and had been given a land in which to flourish turned to seek after everything or anything but the living God who had given them everything. Of course, the Lord sent many prophets during those bleak years and they pronounced judgment And some even provided hope for restoration. In the middle of the 8th century B.C., the Lord sent a prophet Hosea to the northern tribes of Israel with an interesting task to paint a living picture of Israel's adultery and God's faithfulness to preserve a people for himself. Look there with me in Hosea chapter 1. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take for yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. And so he, Hosea, went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Judah and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, not by bow or sword or battle or horses or horsemen. Now when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and bore a son, and God said, Call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. So the Lord shows Israel what they have done and what he is going to do by having Hosea acted out in real life. The message of the last two children is 
mostly self-explanatory. You see there, the Lord is announcing his judgment on the people who have turned away. Lo Rahama is just how you say no mercy in Hebrew. Lo Ami is in Hebrew how you say not my people. But before we move on, let's fill in a few details about this first son, Jezreel. What what exactly is this bloodshed of Jezreel that is on the hands of the house of Jehu? For that answer, we have to back up a little bit. Some of you might remember the story of Ahab, who was one of many unfaithful kings of Israel, and Jezebel, who was a thoroughly wicked woman and who was persistently plotting and persecuting the prophets of the Lord. Jehu was Ahab's army commander, and the Lord Lord anointed an unnamed son of an unnamed prophet to make Je- uh, Jehu king over Israel. We read about it in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 6. It says, Then he, the unnamed son of a prophet, arose and went into the house. He poured oil on his head, that is Jehu, and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. You, Jehu, shall strike down the house of Ahab your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab all the males in Israel, both bond and free. And skipping down to verse 10, we read, The dogs shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. Now, Jehu would fulfill this commission to eradicate the house of Ahab, and the Lord would subsequently commend him for it. But when Jehu went to kill Ahab's immediate son, Joram, he also in the same episode struck down Ahaziah, king of Judah, and subsequently 42 of Ahaziah's brothers. This was not part of Jehu's commission. And while Jehu did go on to be as unfaithful a king of Israel as many other of them had, it is this attack on the line of David, I think, that the Lord is talking about when he names Hosea's first son, Jezreel. So, along with the harlotry of God's people, it is this bloodshed of Jehu that the Lord addresses in Hosea's real-life drama. We just saw how the children define the picture that the Lord is painting in the first chapter there. But look at verse 10. If I haven't said it already, we are going to do some flipping today. So keep your finger in Hosea as we go. Chapter 1, verse 10 of Hosea, it says, the Lord speaking, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. And then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head. And they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. So, out of death in the valley of Jezreel, The Lord intends to change the meaning of the day of Jezreel and bring forth life. 
In chapter 2, the Lord tells the people to speak mercy to one another, to speak family bonds, Ruhama and, and Ami, the opposites of the not my people and the no mercy. He says, speak these terms with your brothers and sisters. But on the other hand, to contend with Israel's leaders, the priests, the king. And so we see that there's some sense in which the Lord holds the nation's leaders, the mother, as it's phrased, more accountable because they led the, their people astray, even though the nation as a whole is guilty. Look there in chapter 2. It says, Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. Bring charges against or contend with your mother. Bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away harlotries from her sight and adulteries from between her breasts. Hosea married this woman, Gomer, that he knew would be unfaithful. She has had three children, and we don't even really know for sure if all of them are Hosea's. In chapter 3, we see that Gomer had deserted Hosea, like he knew would happen, and she had ended up in some sort of a slave trade. And just imagine this uh, with me for a moment. It's kind of hard to do so. Hosea is standing there, and Gomer is on the docket. Uh, someone is trying to fetch the best price he can for her, and her own husband stands in the crowd having to bid on his own wife to bring her back. Gomer is told to stay close to Hosea, to remain pure from harlotry, and this is just like what Israel's future barrenness will lead them to do. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. For the children of Israel shall abide many days, excuse me, without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. In chapter 4 and chapter 5, the Lord's going to expand on his case against Israel. The people are not listening to the faithful priests and instead are following the unfaithful ones into idolatry. When the Lord brings judgment upon the land, the people turn to the Baals, or the false gods, and their foreign neighbors for rescue. In chapter 6, Hosea is going to make a clear call for repentance. And then throughout the rest of the book, chapter 7 through 14, we see an alternating mix of the Lord's promises to judge Israel and his promises to restore them as Hosea, the faithful husband, restored Gomer, the unfaithful wife. But since we want to dive in a little bit more deeply, let's look at how the New Testament writers viewed Hosea as a way to organize our thoughts and as a way to bring the Lord's message through Hosea a little bit closer to home. Again, keep your finger in Hosea, but turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. You'll remember Matthew chapter 2. This is shortly after the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Herod is doing his best. Herod is plotting to get rid of Jesus, to find him so that he can kill him. He's 
trying to use the wise men and their information to do so. The wise men were warned in a dream to get out of there, and so they do. And then we see in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, it says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, you all have been instructed in these sorts of things, so you and me alike. We, we might be tempted to say something like, Jesus is the new Israel, and then just leave it there. Well, Jesus is the new Israel. And Jesus as the new Israel is there in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew says Jesus was brought from Egypt to the promised land, just like Israel. After being brought out of Egypt, Israel goes through the water of the Red Sea. In Matthew 3, Jesus is baptized. Israel spends 40 years wandering in the wilderness for their disobedience. Jesus spends 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, and he succeeds. We know from the book of Hebrews that Jesus is the better Moses. And so this is Matthew's way of saying that Jesus is the better Israel, the obedient son that Israel ought to have been. All these connections are legitimate and they are valuable. But let's not miss this. If Matthew wanted simply to point his readers to the Exodus, he could have cited one of the many verses in the book of Exodus. But he didn't. He cited Hosea. There's something more going on here. Because Hosea was the place where God spoke the promise to bring his people out of Egypt, out of bondage again. In the Exodus, the Lord had rescued them from slavery that was no fault of their own. In Hosea, Israel had willingly given themselves over to trust Egypt, to trust Assyria and to trust the foreign false gods. The Lord was promising to bring Israel out of not just slavery, but slavery and adultery. Hosea is not the story about God rescuing a slave, but about rescuing a slave he knew would be unfaithful, and then redeeming her again, And then making a way for her to return to covenant faithfulness. Remember the mother of harlotry? We we read it pretty fast there in Hosea chapter 2. The mother that had led the children astray with her. The children of Israel were supposed to bring charges against her to to contend with her. Go back there, Hosea chapter 2. Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. But bring charges against your mother. Contend with her, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away the harlotries from her sight and her harp and her adulteries from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. I will not have mercy on her children, for they are children of harlotry. 
for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and water and wool and linen, oil and drink. Therefore, behold, this is the Lord speaking still. The Lord will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her path. She'll chase after her lovers, but not overtake them. She will seek them, but not find them. She will say, I will go then. I will go and return to my first husband. For then it was better for me than now. She did not know or she forgot, right? That the Lord gave her grain, new wine, oil, multiplied her silver and gold, which they had prepared for Baal. Therefore, I will return and take away my grain in its time, my new wine in the season. I will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. I will cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her her Sabbaths, and all the appointed feasts. I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages that my lovers had given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals, to which she burned incense. She decked herself with earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, says the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and I will speak comfort to her. I will give her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up. From the land of Egypt. The mother of harlotry, the leadership of Israel, this is the king that had been unfaithful to the Lord for generations, the kings of Israel. These are the priests that had been offering unauthorized religious practices since the kingdom had split. Look down there in Hosea chapter 5. Hear this, O priests, take heed, O house of Israel, give ear, O house of the king, for yours is the judgment, because you have been a snare to Mizpah and a net spread over Tavor. The revolters are deeply involved in slaughter, though I rebuke them all. I know Ephraim, that is Israel, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you commit harlotry, Israel is defiled. They do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God, for the spirit of harlotry is in their midst, and they do not know the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Therefore, Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity, and Judah also stumbles with them. They have dealt treacherously with the Lord, for they have begotten pagan children, and now a new moon shall devour them and their heritage. So when Matthew cites Hosea, let's not miss. He is offering hope. He is offering hope to the mother of harlotry that had yet to repent in Jesus' day. You'll remember that Jesus consistently had pointed words for the leaders of Israel, right? They did not think that they were the adulterous ones. 
Remember just one example, John chapter 8, verse 33, Jesus says, if you, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And how did they answer? We are Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? And of course, they're wrong. Not just once having been slaves in Egypt, but twice having still been under the bondage of slavery, of adultery, of harlotry before their Lord. They did not think that they were slaves. They did not think that they were in bondage. Jesus replies, Amen, Amen, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. The mother of Israel, the Jewish leaders, both in Hosea's day and at the time of Christ, they knew the Lord the way a slave knows a master, not the way a son knows a father. And not the way a bride knows her husband. Jesus told them numerous times that they had built a facade, a fake system that looked like true worship. All the while neglecting the weightier matters of the law. They knew a lot about the husband of Israel. But they did not know the husband of Israel. They had abandoned the husband who brought them out of Egypt. And they had given themselves back to slavery, just like the mother of harlotry in the time of Hosea. And so, of course, Matthew identifies Jesus as the obedient son, the better Israel that ought to have been. But he also calls the mother, repent. The hope of Hosea is still faithful to his marriage covenant. The theme of God's unwavering faithfulness is fairly transparent in this book, right, in Hosea. But when we see alternating pronouncements of judgment and promises of restoration, it raises questions about how this all works. If God's faithfulness is unchanging, and it is, how is it that he chooses to withdraw his compassion from those in Israel that will never return to him? This is a topic that Paul lands on in Romans chapter 9, if you'd like to turn there. Chapter 9, verse 6. Paul says, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. Why? For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. In verses 9 through 13, Paul explains that the promise was not given to Abraham's physical descendants through Hagar, but only through Sarah. And then again, the promises are refined to Abraham's seed through Jacob, but not Esau. And then we land at verse 14. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. 
and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And so then it is not of him who wills, nor of the one who runs, but of God who shows mercy. He offers Pharaoh as an example of someone raised up specifically for the purposes of hardening. And then we get to verse 19 and he says, you will say to me then, why does the Lord still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And don't miss this. It is an absolute, uh, undeniable work of mercy. Verse 29. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become just like Sodom, and we would have made, been made just like Gomorrah. Without the Lord's mercy, no one survives. Just like the Lord said they would, when he withdrew his blessing from Israel, they unfaithfully subjected themselves to the bondage of foreign powers and false gods. Israel took what remained of the Lord's provision and tried with it to purchase safety, security from an unreliable slave master, Egypt. Assyria, the false gods, the Baals. You want to flip back to Hosea, look at chapter 5, verse 13. When Ephraim, that's again another name for Israel. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. He cannot cure you nor heal you of your wounds. Look down there in chapter 7, verse 11. Ephraim is also like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. Flipping back to Romans for a moment or at least thinking about it. Paul says that both Israel and the Gentiles were slaves to sin, right? This is Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3. Just like in Hosea's day, their slave master sinned led them to reject God and his law, and their slave master plundered them. This is Romans 6, Romans 7. In Hosea's day, Israel gave what the Lord provided as an offering to appease their neighbors, to buy a new master. They did not realize that they were buying a slave master. 
Paul says that the slave master's sin takes the holy, righteous, good law of God, deceives them, and produces death. Israel chose to serve sin instead of the one who brought her out of Egypt and became a husband to her. And we know this to be true, right? The relationship of a slave and a master is different than a marriage relationship. It's different than a husband and a bride. Look at Hosea chapter 2, verse 16 again. In that day... Here, my notes. Oh, let me skip back here. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband, and you will no longer call me my master, for I will take from her the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered to uh, remembered by that name no more. Now this is a it's a play on words here that is somewhat important. My master, the word, the word is Baal. The, the name that we call or the name that they call the false god were the Baals. The Lord's, he's distancing himself from that name. The Lord said he, was, he would remove Israel's fruitfulness when she, was, when she had been spending it on adultery. And he was going to do this for the purpose of producing, producing repentance. And then he says that the Lord or he says that they won't call him Baal because it puts him in the same category as those foreign powers and those false gods. The one who those false gods, those foreign powers who don't produce a blessing, they just consume the ones who are not worthy of trust. And this part should sound familiar. Listen for it. Verse 18. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, with the creeping things of the ground, the bow and the sword of battle. I will shatter from the earth and I will make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in loving kindness, and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Paul says back in Romans chapter 9, verse 30, that Israel pursued the Lord like a slave master, doing what was required, as if the master, master's righteous approval and blessing could be earned or guaranteed or obligated. But just like in Hosea's day, the Lord stands ready to declare his righteous approval on those to turn to him in faith. The Lord will not gather a people to himself on the basis, or sorry, the Lord will gather the people to himself on the basis of faith and faithfulness. Again, not like a master and a slave, but like a groom and a bride. In Romans chapter 4, we, we learn that the Lord ordained it this way for a reason. And the reason is so that he can gather both the Jews and the Gentiles, the seed of Abraham by faith, so that men can stand before God and be declared righteous through no merit of their own. Though Abraham's physical descendants 
were many. God's redemption plan by faith gathers people in a way that no one can boast. In a way that God displays the glory of his justice. In a way that God plants a people who were not his people and has mercy on those who had no mercy. This is the glory of the new covenant, right? Did you did you notice that language? Did it sound familiar? About 150 years after Hosea, the Lord would put this new covenant plan into writing. This is the covenant we hear about through Jeremiah. This is the covenant we hear about through the prophet Ezekiel. This is the better covenant to which the writer to the Hebrews points us. If you want to flip over there, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8. It says, but because finding fault with them, that is the old covenant, the old ways, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I had made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and I will write on write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And of course, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, the better Moses, the greater David, the mediator of the new covenant. He is the only one who would or could establish this kind of covenant. He is the only one who could betroth a bride to her husband in righteousness. In so doing, Jesus is the only way to demonstrate the triune God's loving kindness and mercy to a sinful people. And in the person and work of Jesus Christ, he is the only way for the Lord to gift his people faith. To make them faithful in justice. And don't miss this. Back in Hosea chapter 2 verse 19. The Lord says, I will betroth them forever. The foreverness of the new covenant is so, so glorious, isn't it? Look there in Hosea chapter 13 verse 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. Or, as other translations put it, where is your sting? O grave, I will be your destruction. Or, where is your victory? Pity or repentance, says the Lord, is hidden from my eyes. The Lord's plan to redeem his unfaithful bride is not subject to him changing his mind. That's the pity. That's the repentance that the Lord hides from his own eyes. Nor can the redemption in his new covenant be thwarted or spoiled by death. It is a forever covenant. And now by this point, we all know that Jesus is the only way that this eternal durability is possible. But look. One last New Testament text 
in Paul's letter to the first Corinthian, or first letter to the Corinthians, and we, we see how this works a little bit. Look there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Oh, we experience this, right? We know this. We feel this. Our sin is is just the first sting of the death that comes from it. The law makes us feel that, that venom working through our mortal bodies until the death comes to pass. Verse 57, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Adam's sin, you'll remember, rendered him dead to God, and eventually his body died. Christ's redemption, Christ's work, renders us alive to God, and Christ's resurrection is the down payment for the purchase of our bodily resurrection. His resurrection buys the certainty of the resurrection of God's people. This is the way God the husband betrothes his bride forever. The Lord sent a judgment to the land of Jezreel for the bloodshed of Jehu. The land stopped giving its bounty for Israel to spend on her adultery and her idolatry. But that's not the end of the story. Of Jezreel. This is not, it is not the last word on the day of Jezreel. The Lord scattered Israel to their lovers in 722 BC in the north, 586 BC in the south. In 722, Israel, the northern kingdom, was no more. The Lord scattered Israel, and then the Lord scattered the seed. of a new people, of a faithful bride. Hosea declared the Lord's faithfulness to bring life and faith, to bring a new people of God, a people brought to a new life, a new life that is eternal. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now, of course, if this is the first time, I'm looking around to see who I know here and maybe who I don't. If this is the first time you've heard of this, if this is the first time you've heard of your slavery to sin, 
the sin that condemns you, if this is the first time that you have seen the judgment your sin deserves, you see the foolishness of turning to any governmental power or higher education or man-made religion, if you see the foolishness of turning anywhere but the one Savior, the one who rose from the dead, the one who is trustworthy to save you from your sin and join you to the husband of Israel faithfully forever. If this is news to you, the call is clear. The hope of Hosea is right in front of us. Turn from your sin. Turn toward the only Savior, Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Trust him. Put your faith in him. But for those of us who know about these things, Hosea demands a little bit more introspection. Hosea calls us to examine the nature of our relationship to the God who brought forth life from death on the day of Jezreel. Thursday and Friday, last Thursday and Friday, my wife and I traveled uh, to a funeral. A funeral of an old friend, and I say that she's an old friend because she was a friend long ago, not because she was old. In fact, she was younger than me by a handful of years. And as you all know, probably funerals bring these realities to the forefront, right? There's there's no escaping uh, this kind of contemplation when death is right there at the door or in front of you. Funerals are where we sense that sting of sin that maybe most days we can power through and get over and get past and move beyond. That sting of sin that says this is worthy of death. And of the many stories that uh, Tennille's pastor shared about her uh, during the funeral service, uh, he told one that I thought was applicable here. He said one day when she was around college age that she stormed into his office and took herself a seat. And she proceeded to ask him how she can know the Lord. Know the Lord, he said, more than like a fan knows her favorite movie star. She wanted to be sure that she wasn't just knowing about God, like a slave knows about a master, but she wanted to know him, like a bride knows her husband. And the question is obvious. The contemplation is necessary. And the question is this. Do we know him like this? It is so glorious. It is so praiseworthy. It is so worthy of worship to know that the husband of Israel stands ready to demonstrate his faithfulness in the very moment that he calls his people out of our unfaithfulness. So as we close here, Hosea chapter 12, verse 6 says, So you, by the help of your God, return. 
Observe mercy and justice and wait on your God continually. And also in Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we might live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are a sinful people, even though we know so much about you. Lord, help us to hate our sin the way that you hate it. Lead our hearts to turn to you. We ask that we might know you the way that you know us, like a bride and her husband. And that you might make us as faithful to you as you have been to us. By the power of your spirit, on the merit of your son, in whose name we pray. Amen.